Welcome, Calvary Quakertown. It's good to have you with us this morning. And I want to tell you right up front, you have my permission to find Carlos, tackle him, tie him down, dress him in green and white. Uh, that's what we need to do up there. Well, it's good to have you join us on this uh, Super Bowl Sunday. We're uh, in a series that we're calling The Prequel. And in the series, we're looking at some scenes in the backstory, the backstory of Jesus that help us understand a little better what his mission is and how he went about doing it and how unexpected his coming really was. We're doing that by looking at the book of Judges. Well, this morning we come to two chapters, chapters four and five. Together they tell one episode. And that episode has lots of twists and turns in it. So if you would, take your Bibles. I'm not going to read both chapters. I'm going to read chapter four. So you can follow along as I read. Then we're going to kind of go back through and we'll look at the characters, the plot, tease out a couple lessons, and then we'll be dismissed before you know it. So if you would, take your Bibles, your phones, your tablets, whatever, turn to Judges chapter 4, and see if you can trace out some twists and turns as I read. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Hereshath Hagioim, because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried out to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, disputes decided, son of Abinoam from Kadesh, in Naphtali and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon river and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, she said. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zanani, near Kadesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned uh, from Harasheth, Hoigim, from the Kishon River, all the men, all, all of his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hoigim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. 
So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there? Say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Just then Barak arrived in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you were looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. A few twists and turns there, don't you think? Well, here's what we're going to do. Let's first of all talk about some of the characters. Um, I'm not sure if you noticed, but the character, characters appeared in pairs. There are a couple pairs. And it's important to know the players in order to understand a story, right? And so there are good guys and bad guys, and you have to know the good guys and bad guys in order to understand the story. All right, so the first pair here are a couple of the good guys. I thought, that's Nick Foles and Fletcher Cox, and they're two of the good guys. Now we have a couple of the bad guys. Okay, that's that. That would be cheating Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski. But no, they're not the good guys and bad guys we meet. That, that's later today. Let's talk about the good guys and bad guys, the characters in the story. The first pair is Jabin and Sisera. So we read them in the story, and it says that the Lord sold the Israelites into the hands of Jabin. Jabin is the king of Canaan. So if you remember, the Israelites are led into the promised land, the land of Canaan. They're led in by Joshua. And remember, the charge was, throw everybody who lives there out of the land. Jabin is only in the land because the Israelites didn't have the faith to obey what God said. He shouldn't have been in the land. Jabin, king of Canaan, is in the land because of a lack of faith and disobedience. Sisera is Jabin's general, kind of his right-hand man, right? Villains usually have right-hand helpers. So, you know, he's a goldfinger head odd job, right? So you, you can think of whoever your villain is. They usually have a henchman, you know, kind of does it. Sisera is Jabin's henchman. And Sisera is really the main character in the story because Sisera has 900 iron chariots. Now, that may, may not sound like a formidable weapon to you. That's only because you didn't live back then. The, uh, an iron chariot back then would have been an awesome military uh, vehicle, right? Probably kind of like a tank. So if you have 10,000 men, but you're going against 9,000 chariots, that's not a fair fight. 900 chariots beats 10,000 troops every day. Sisera commands 900 chariots outfitted with iron. That means that, you know, they kind of stand against whatever defense you can throw. And the way the chariots worked back then, chariots were shooting platforms. So the archers would stand on the platform, and at great speed, they would be able to rush against the enemy while the enemy's trying to run away on foot or kind of run over here. The horses are racing with the chariots. They're running them down, and the archers are taking them out. Sisera has 900 chariots. He is the general of Jabin's army. Jabin is the king of Canaan. They shouldn't have been in the land, but they're in the land. They're ruling, and they've oppressed God's people for 20 years. Okay, you know the first two characters? Now, here are the next two characters. 
Jael and Heber. Jael and Heber. Now, they don't show up, you know, kind of until the end of the story. But Jael, at least, turns out to be real pivotal in the story. And we learn a couple facts about Heber that's kind of interesting. First of all, we learn that Heber is a Kenite. Can you believe it? He's a Kenite. Does that help? Uh, no, that doesn't help. But the Kenites were descendants of Hobab. Now you get it. Well, now we can move on. Uh, no, no, no. Here's the important part. Hobab is a descendant of Moses' brother-in-law. And so there's some kind of connection here, right? Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, the Kenites are descendants of, there's a relationship between Hobab, therefore Heber, the Kenites, and Israel, God's people. But here's the other thing you need to know. Heber left the other Kenites, left, left, uh, left the little Tenite, Kenite town, and moved into Canaan. How in the world would a Kenite have been able to live in Canaan? I'll tell you how. Because he made an alliance, he formed a covenant with Jabin. Otherwise, Sisera would send a couple of iron chariots and throw him out of the land. So Heber moved into Canaan. He forms a covenant with Jabin, the king of Canaan. And so they're allies. That becomes real important. They're allies in the story. They're buddies. That's why when Sisera shows up at Heber's tent, he thinks he's safe. Oh my goodness, finally, I made it to a friendly place. See how that works? Jael is Heber's wife. And, uh, you know, she's kind of a stay-at-home kind of woman. She likes to cook, clean, and uh, set up tents. Uh, yeah, you don't want to take J.L. camping. That, that's what I'm saying. Uh, and so J.L. uses her skill to kind of win the day and take out the enemy. And we'll talk about that when, when we get to the plot. Well, the last pair that we come across, Deborah and Barak. Deborah and Barak. Now, Deborah is kind of the shining light in the whole story. Deborah, we're told, is a judge. And remember I told you, you know, for the last couple of weeks, I've been saying, now, when I say judge and you read judge in the Bible, don't think of a black robe, don't think of a high desk, don't think of a gavel, don't think of adjudicating, you know, cases. That... Well, Deborah comes pretty close to that. Deborah really is a judge similar to what we think of as judges. And she holds court, not in a courtroom, she holds court under a tree. You know, trees were kind of important back then. So under the tree of Deborah, Deborah holds court. And Deborah had integrity. Deborah had character. Deborah had wisdom. So people would come because Deborah was really, really smart. And Deborah would be able to navigate through complex, you know, details. This, you know, we need Deborah to sort out, you know, what's going on with our government, right? Um, it was at this, what, what's up with the memo? Who, we need Deborah to help us figure that out. Well, people would go to Deborah with their disputes. And Deborah would be able to cut through all the miscellaneous details and the things that don't matter and give the verdict and she had done that so well, people from all over the place were coming to Deborah with their complaints, with their disagreements, and she was solving their problems. And everybody kind of appreciated the results. People weren't ticked off. Deborah was a judge in that kind of sense. Deborah's also a prophet, we're told, right? See? Deborah, a prophet. Well, what do prophets do? Prophets communicate God's word. So Deborah is, you know, kind of like an Old Testament preacher. That's partly, maybe the main reason, Deborah's so good at doing the judge thing because she has God's perspective on things. 
And so God's communicating to her um, what his word's about. She's kind of putting the pieces together. She's living out that good news in her life. She's a prophet. She is a judge. And she's a leader. She's like a leader in Israel. I can prove it to you. When Deborah says to uh, Barak, a general, here's God's commission to you. Go get 10,000 troops, come back and attack Sisera. Barak does not say, who are you talking to? I don't have to listen to you. What does he say? Yes. And he goes and rounds up 10,000 troops. So Deborah is a prophet. Deborah is a judge in that ruling, judicial, discerning, adjudicating sense. And she's a leader. She is leading. And she's leading with character and integrity, not with might and muscle. Deborah's the only judge that's not a warrior. Deborah leads with character, integrity, wisdom, and God's perspective. A prophet, a judge, a leader. That's Deborah. She's also an encourager. When Barak says, well, I really don't want to go unless you go with me, she says, I'll go with you. Whatever it's going to, Deborah's an encourager. She comes alongside. You know, just like we're told in the New Testament, you know, Jesus sends his spirit alongside. Deborah goes alongside Barak He's to encourage and strengthen and so forth. Deborah is the shining light of the story and probably of the book of Judges. Well, then we come to Barak. And Barak's kind of a, a little bit of a mixed bag. And in fact, there are two different ways to read what goes on with Barak. Um, is Barak kind of a, a wimpy guy or is Barak a faithful guy? Uh, it's kind of hard to tell. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to the plot. So did you, did you know our three pairs? We have Deborah and Barak, Jael and Heber, and we got Jabin and Sisera. There are three pairs. Now, we live in a completely different culture with different history, different mores, different values. And so this may not seem that strange to you. But one of the clear things that's happening in this story, God reverses the normal order in all three of them. Jabin is the king, but who's the real authority in that, in that whole part of the country? Sisera is. Jabin's king, yeah, but who really is at the top of the org chart? Sisera. And my guess is if Jabin gets out of line, one of those iron chariots could take care of him too, right? It's reversed. Who becomes the main character in the story to win the day? J.L., well, Heber's the one that we got his pedigree and he fits together. You know, he's kind of related to Moses back here. But it's J.L. that wins the day. She's not related to anybody. We would expect Barak, kind of the man, and to be the leader. But here Deborah is clearly the prophet, the leader, the judge. Everything is kind of reversed. And in that culture, that would have really been strange. We just kind of miss it because that's how life works in our world. But those reversals are pretty important. All right, so let's uh, look at the plot. What's the plot and how does it unfold? Well, the story begins as every story of the judges begins. So here's how the first verse works. Again, the Israelites did evil. Are you getting sick and tired of hearing that by now? Again, the Israelites did evil. Again, the Israelites. And I don't know about you, but, you know, we're only like a few judges into the book so far, and you're getting sick and tired of that. You say, oh, my goodness. Yeah, just, how much, just uh, take a minute to think how God must feel when he looks at you in your life and your story. 
I mean, how many times? And he did evil in the sight of me again. And she's running off the rails again. And she's facing something, not trusting me again. And I give her all these reasons, and I give him all these reasons to trust me and say I'll follow through, and I promise. But rather than trust me, even though I've been faithful, or trusting some, yeah, that same story is true of us, but we read it in the Judges over and over and over again. But as you keep reading, so Ehud is dead by now. The Lord oppresses them through Jabin, and they cry out to the Lord. Does that sound familiar by now? Uh, there's the basic cycle, right? So here's the cycle. Rebellion. Rebellion leads to oppression by Jabin and Sisera. Eventually they cry out, is it genuine repentance? Uh, we don't know the whole backstory. Uh, kind of push comes to shove. It's hard to tell. And the rest of the story, that colorful account with the twists and the turns, is really nothing more than the rescue, how it unfolds. So let's walk through the rescue and how that works. It's said that Jabin and Sisera oppressed Israel for 20 years. Now, I know when you read the Bible, you know, time kind of, it's a long time ago, and you read about 100 years here and 40 years there and 20. 20 years doesn't seem that, that much, right? Well, let me ask you, 20 years ago, it was Super Bowl 32. Do you remember who played? I didn't either. I had to look it up. Super Bowl 32, the Denver Bron Broncos. Played the Green Bay Packers, and John Elway won the Super Bowl. Well, it's a distant memory, right? Israel has been oppressed by Jabin and Sisera for 20 years. That's a long time to be oppressed. That's a long time to be under someone's foot. That's a long time to be excluded, to be excluded and exploited and maligned. That's a long time to have someone come and take all your stuff. That's a long time to be servient to somebody. 20 years. Well, eventually they come to their senses and they cry out. And once again, God brings a rescuer that would not be expected. And God brings rescue in a way that nobody would have ever dreamed. So how does it go? Well, we've got a righteous ruler. And that righteous ruler is Deborah. As I said before, she rules with character and integrity. She's on God's side. She's continuing what God started. She really is living out the principles of the gospel before Jesus arrives. She's a judge. She's a prophet. She's a leader. She's an encourager. She's a righteous, she's a righteous ruler, a righteous leader. Well, then we come to Barak. Now, is, is Barak a, a reluctant rescuer or what is he? Well, let me explain it this way. There are actually two ways to read how Barak functions. Here's the first way. Deborah comes to Barak and says, Okay, Barak, God's calling you to take 10,000 troops, attack Sisera, and win the day. God will be with you. And Barak says, Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'll only go if you go with me. He's kind of wimping out, right? That, that, this is a pessimistic way to read it. And that's the way your NIV reads, right? But because you won't follow through, God's going to give the honor to a woman. And at this point, the only woman mentioned in the story is Deborah. Everybody thinks Deborah is going to be the champion. It, another twist and turn. It's not Deborah at the end. But, but that, that's kind of the pessimistic view. The optimistic view goes something like this. Deborah says, Barak, God's calling you, troops, and go against Sisera, and you'll win the day. And just like Moses said to God, 
if you don't go with me, I won't go. Deborah is the presence and voice of God to him. And so he says, well, I want to make sure God's going with me, God's presence, God. I'm not exactly sure which of one it is, but I do know this. In the New Testament, in that faith chapter, Barak makes the cut. So you better not look down your uh, snooty nose too much because we read this in Hebrews 11. And what more shall I say? The writer of Hebrews says, I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson and Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. Yeah, you better be careful of being too negative on the guy. Deborah doesn't make the Hebrews 11 chapter. Uh, I'm not saying she shouldn't have, right? But I, I didn't make that decision. But Barak makes it. For whatever reason, he seems somewhat reluctant to go. And then we've got this deceitful death. Uh, you notice that with Ahud and then again with Jael, we've got two murders to end the stories. Right? I mean, don't, don't sanitize it. We got two murders to end the stories, right? Um, Ahud murders Eglon, and Jael murders um, Sisera. Well, how does it go down? Well, it goes like this. The 900 iron chariots are no match for the 10,000 troops of Israel. No match at all. But 900 chariots are no match for God. So what does he do? Well, if you read chapter 5, which is kind of the poem, you read that God says, okay, well, I can uh, neutralize the chariots. In fact, I'll make them a burden rather than an asset. So God sends a storm. So all of a sudden, those chariots that are now extra heavy because of all the iron are all stuck in the mud, and they can't move. So all of a sudden, the 10,000 Israelite soldiers on dry ground, they can run a whole lot faster than the chariots can move. And so the 10,000 Israelites wind up defeating the chariots of iron, 900 of them. Sisera escapes on foot. Picture? His chariot's really stuck in the mud, right? He can't get it. So he jumps down. He takes off running. All of his soldiers, you know, haven't kind of made it, so he takes off running. And eventually he arrives at Heber's little tent community there. What does he do when he walks into the community? Thank whomever. Thank Baal I made it, right? I can't believe it. I'm here. I've made safety, right? Heber has an alliance with Jabin. Oh, yeah, but to his surprise, old Heber's not home, just J.L. And J.L. shows hospitality. J.L. welcomes, oh, come right in, sister. Boy, I notice you're tired. You need a little rest. Why don't you take our tent? All right, so she undoes the tent flap, and Cicero goes in. He's exhausted from battle, right, and slogging through the mud. And she said, well, look, why don't you lay down? Said, I'm really thirsty. Get me a drink. He asks for water. But she is like the hostess with the mostess, right? She brings him milk, not water. Uh, hospitality, pretty important, right? Living up to the alliance, real important stuff. And uh, so he drinks the milk. And then he says, oh, J.L., by the way, if anybody comes to your little tent community here and they ask if I'm here, say no, nobody's here. Got it, J.L. says. She leaves. He falls soundly asleep. He's snoring away in there. 
JL picks up a couple tools that she was real familiar with, right? Because, you know, making camp was kind of woman's work, right? I don't make camp, well, I don't go camping, period, right? But um, so she went in and she was pretty familiar with tent pegs and hammers. That's how she would set the tent up. So she goes to the tools that she's most familiar with, picks up the tent peg that seems it'll do the work, make sure it's long enough to implant this guy's skull. So she goes in and he's still out and she very carefully, without touching him, lays the one end of that baby right over his temple and with a few swift blows, hammers his head to the ground. Look, the headache only lasted a little while. It, it didn't last that long. Well, pretty soon, Barak shows up. JL, right, has an alliance with the enemy. So Barak's kind of nervous, I'm guessing, right? Barak shows up and, you know, if I'm Barak, I got my sword out because I don't know who this foreigner, who this enemy, um, you know, this person has an alliance with the enemy. I'm not sure who she's hiding. And so she says, oh, I have just the man you're looking for. Come over here and meet him. Well, I don't know about you, but if I'm Barak, I'm walking pretty carefully toward that tent. You know, my fingers are tightening and loosening on the grip of the sword, and my heart is racing now, waiting that he's going to jump out as she opens the tent thing, and she opens the tent flag, and he, he's nailed to the floor. And J.L. wins the day. Well, that's a neat story, isn't it? Uh, uh, yeah, try telling your kids that is a bedtime story. Uh, they'll never get to sleep. That's in the Bible. And Barak is listed in the faith chapter. And those twists and turns in some crazy way point to the unexpected rescuer and the unexpected rescue that Jesus does for us. Let me tease out uh, just a couple of lessons and then we'll, uh, we'll call it a morning. The first thing I want to mention is uh, women are the key characters in the story. Did you notice that? And if you read chapter 5, we meet another woman. Deborah is the woman of character and integrity. She's the prophet. She's the leader in Israel. She's the one that is calling the shots. And I know there are some people that say, oh, that's because there were no men around that could do it. It doesn't say that. You're making that up. Deborah was leading Israel. She has God's perspective on things. She's an encourager, and she is the judge. We then meet J.L., She's kind of the champion that wins the day. She's not even Jewish. She's a foreigner. She's a real outsider. She's not an outsider just be, but because she's female. She's an outsider. She's not even an Israeli. She wins the day. As you turn over to the next chapter, the song ends with the introduction of another woman. Here, check it out. It's good reading for before the Super Bowl. Sisera's mother ends the poem. And here's how it goes. I'm not a good poet, but here's how it goes. Sisera's mother is wondering why old Sisera is taking so long getting home. And she's looking out the window, keep lifting the blinds. Where the heck is my son? And the servant girls say, oh, you shouldn't worry. He's probably exploiting the enemy. And here's what they say. Just like all the other battles, he's collecting a bunch of women girls that will be given as plunder to the other soldiers. That's what he's doing. And he's going to bring a few of those women, girls home for him as slaves as well. That's what he's doing. And he's rounding up a lot of good things that he's going to come home and give to you. 
just like he had done over and over and over again. Yeah, but at the end of the story, Sisera's mother, who got wealthy, fat, comfortable, and complacent because of the oppression of other people, is in a world of hurt because her son's never coming home. And Deborah, who lived under oppression and under exploitation, she followed God. And we read about her in a positive way thousands of years later. And old J.L., an outcast, somebody you'd never give a second thought to, becomes the one that's given the honor of defeating the enemy. Funny story, huh? But that's not that uncommon in the Bible. Now, you do have to understand the context of the Bible is a very patriarchal culture. Now, I'm not saying that that's right. I'm just saying that that's how it was. You know, men kind of ruled everything. But the Bible, almost all the time it seems, and we don't notice it because we live in a much more egalitarian culture, but in a patriarchal culture, it would have been really weird to see how many women get lifted up and honored in the Bible. So we get Miriam, who's a prophet. We get Ruth, who epitomizes faith. We get Esther, who sacrifices to save her people. We get Mary Magdalene, whose life is transformed and becomes the first preacher of the gospel. We get Martha and Mary serving and Mary a disciple sitting at Jesus' feet. That doesn't mean she's sitting there all goo-goo-eyed looking up at Jesus. When you sit at someone's feet, you're a student preparing to go and teach. Do you realize the last people at the, at the cross were women? The first people at the tomb were women. A woman is the first convert in Europe. And for just a small slice of time, women were the preachers of the gospel because it was only women that knew of the resurrection. That's not only true in the Bible. That's true at Calvary Church, friends. I sat down in just a few minutes, and so I, I, this is not an exhaustive list. Let me just mention a few women that have influenced and shaped us here at Calvary Church. Not just some, they've shaped all. I talked to Grace Miller before the service. Do you know Grace Miller taught and led in this church leading children's ministries for decades. And our families are richer because of that. Jess Greaser is one of the leaders in student ministries, and she's doing a great job. Karen Pisani works to put these services together, produces them, and works with a number of women on those production teams. Deb, Carolyn, Emily, Brianna, they lead us in worship regularly. Linda Spencer encourages, speaks to, and builds all of us up. Claudia Kirsch leads in children's ministry. Lori Lehman leads the bridge ministry for all of those people and families that are connected at Calvary Church. Jen Stute is the leader, one of the key leaders at our Quakertown campus. That's not just the sidelight. That's kind of part of the warp and woof of what's going on in the Bible and at Calvary Church and look, I know that you go to different churches and there are different perspectives on what women can do and what they can't do. But I'll tell you this. Those little differences on areas of conviction, and they had better not separate brothers and sisters because we need each other. And we live in a culture 
where there are a whole lot of people seeking to do away with what we're continuing to follow as we follow Jesus and implement the gospel. So we better be real careful about shooting at each other. And maybe we need to say, you know what, we need to thank God for the women and the men that are used in our lives to build us up and care for us here. And that is a really weird picture when it comes to the Bible in that patriarchal culture. Something radically different is happening in the Bible. Well, the second lesson is about rescue and Jesus. Now, I know it's hard to think about Jesus being deceitful, right? Kind of like Ehud. And it's kind of weird to think about Jesus welcoming in Sisera and then driving a tent peg through his head. But I'll tell you this. Jesus is the most unexpected rescuer that you could ever imagine. And the rescue he brings is completely outlandish, isn't it? Who would have thought Jesus, a nobody from the backwater part of the world, would be the savior of the world? And who would have ever thought the ultimate rescue comes by him dying on a cross? You can't make that up. Jesus and rescue, unexpected, all the way around. And one last one. Rescue and celebration. Now, I didn't read anything from chapter 5. I just referred to it. But if you have your Bible or open or on your phone, I want you to notice how the indentation is different. Notice that? So in chapter 4, the indentation works the way you're used to it working. The first line of a paragraph gets indented. Remember, like, from third grade? You indent the first line of the paragraph, right? That's chap chapter 4. Then all of a sudden you come to chapter 5, you get this weird indentation, right? Like, the first line is justified left, and then one or two lines move, or indent, what the heck's going on? Yeah, chapter 5 is a poem. It's a song. That's how poetry, that's how music gets recorded. Chapter 4 just reports the facts. Chapter 5 is the celebration. Now here's my point. The Israelites whooped it up. They celebrated and they partied whenever they thought about the defeat of Jabin and Sisera. Don't you think? Oppressed for 20 years. They celebrate. That's chapter 5. I mean, you read it. It's figurative. It's over the top. It's rejoicing. And when you rejoice, you say things in hyperbole. Don't you? That's what chapter 5 is. That's what, that's what poetry is. They're singing a song of victory. Now, I watched you all as we started this service. And you were all singing with joy and celebration. But we're going to end the service by singing again. And I'm going to be watching this one too. And just like chapter 4, the account of what happens leads to chapter 5, the celebration of what that means. We're going to end the service by having the band come back. And we're going to sing to celebrate the difference that our unexpected rescuer brings as an unexpected rescue because of his work on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, we give you thank for, thanks for these crazy stories, for these individuals that are not lifted up as models or examples, but in some strange way they point to Jesus, our unexpected rescuer, who brought about an unexpected rescue. And even though in the book of Judges, the peace only lasts as long as the judge lives. Jesus, you never die from here on out. Therefore, the peace you give is eternal.
and our celebration and joy will be forever and ever too. So Lord, help us in the midst of seasons of difficulty and pain, disappointment and defeat, to lift our eyes above those things and to realize our ultimate enemies, sin and death, have been taken out by our unlikely rescuer in an unlikely way. Help us to follow him. Continue what he started. We pray in his name. Amen.